This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 3rd, 2017. The reader is Bill Thomas. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Risen, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and his heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods of the, are moved in the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now, meet with Ahaz, you and Shir Jesab, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool to the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed, and be, not, and be quiet, do not fear, the, or be faint-hearted, for those are two stubs of smoking firebrands. For the fierce anger of Risen and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, is, Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its walls for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is risen. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you do not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself, for the Lord your God Ask if either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, "Now, Hear now, O house of David. It is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall be conceived and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey shall eat, that he may know it to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. This is the word, God's word. Thank you, Bill. And good morning. We are beginning our Advent season, um, calling it an Old Testament Christmas. We spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, but considering upwards of 75% of the Bible is Old Testament, that probably makes sense. But I'm going to pray and ask that God will uh, give us some understanding of, of this word He has for us today. If you bow with me. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have not only brought us into Your family through Your Son, Jesus, that you delight in hearing us pray and you delight in us endeavoring to understand that, Lord, you have not left 
Yourself nor Your will a mystery to us. You have given Your Word and it is powerful. It changes us from the inside out. It realigns us to what is true. It gives us courage and hope. So Lord, this Word though is hundreds and hundreds of years ago when it was written. Lord, it is still living and is still active. And so I pray that You will move me out of the way. The Holy Spirit, You will speak the words that need to be spoken to each and every one of us. Words of conviction or words of comfort, words of realignment, words that reveal what is true about life despite perhaps what we see right now. Father, lift our eyes to see where our help truly comes from and let us see Jesus in all His glory that began, yes, in a manger and went through a cross, but will come again in all glory as true and fullness of His kingship. We thank you, Lord, for today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're entering what is traditionally called the season of Advent. Um, and the word Advent comes from a, another word, a Latin word, Adventus, which just means coming. So it's a celebration of Jesus' first coming. And it's not just a celebration, it's also an anticipation of His second coming, something that we typically only talk about um, at Easter, and we talk about his first coming at Christmas, but we should probably talk about both all the time. Um, the season of Advent, just according to the church calendar, lasts basically the four Sundays that, that lead up to Christmas. And on this first week, the theme traditionally is that of hope, where we are speaking about the promise of Jesus and the hope that comes from that, particularly in the Old Testament. And next week we'll talk about the person of Jesus, who was this Messiah that was promised to come. Now, hope is a very um, powerful thing. And that word perhaps misunderstood a little bit, but it is a very powerful thing. If you have hope, if you don't have hope, if you have hope, hope can, can lift your spirits. Hope can change your perspective. Hope can give you courage. Hope can help you endure Simply defined, and maybe in the words of the world, hope is just that belief that your circumstances are going to get better. It's not just a, a wishful thinking for things to get better. It is truly a heart-level conviction that things are going to change for the better despite what you can see right now with your eyes. Technically speaking, if we really want to dig down into it, which is where I typically go when I'm talking about ideas like this, I dig into it during the week. If we want to be technical, we don't find hope in better circumstances as much as we find hope in something that we believe possesses the power to actually make those better circumstances possible. So there's something that we believe is powerful enough, and I guess if you're completely pagan, it's fate or karma or something like that, uh, but for, for others, it's, it's maybe themselves, but for us, it's the Lord. Like, I have hope because I know that the Lord is in control and He can bring about better circumstances. And so, if we talk about like the power of hope, the power of hope resides in the power of that which is hoped in, not which is hoped for. The power of what or who is hoped in, not is what that is hoped for. 
In other words, it's really a, a matter of belief or unbelief when we talk about hope. And I'm not sure often we connect belief or unbelief to hope. But what we believe in, the nature of, of who we believe in, will either fill us with hope or eventually rob it from us. So we must be careful about who or what we hope in. Now, hope is only necessary when things feel hopeless. Like when you're in a situation where you're like, man, this looks bad. This looks hopeless. I, I need to, to think of something beyond. And it's at these times where that's what we do. We, we go, okay, what I understand doesn't look good, and so we hope beyond our understanding. Or we see something that we realize we are not strong enough to fix, and so we are hoping beyond our ability, or even beyond our imagination, basically beyond ourselves. It's this ultimate hope we're talking about. And we, as I said, can place our ultimate hope in wrong things or wrong persons. What kinds of wrong things or wrong persons? Well, wrong things is anything that can be taken away or never come about given enough time or tragedy or accidents or just brokenness, which is a lot. Like if I'm putting all my hope in having a particular vocation and achieving a particular lifestyle, there's so many things that can make sure that doesn't happen. Or I'm hoping for a particular kind of relationship, but the reality is in the, longer, the older I get, I realize how little control I have over relationships. And so, we can hope in the wrong things, and we can hope in the wrong people. When you hope in the wrong people, you, you are hoping in, in oftentimes people who can't be trusted, or at least they're not strong enough to guarantee that they can save you from the hell that you imagine. Now, Sometimes we place our hope in temporary things like beauty, wealth, health, all things that be taken away given enough time and situation. And sometimes we place, and wrongly so, our ultimate hope in people like spouses. Like this person needs to make me feel a certain way. Or putting ultimate hope in a doctor. Right? You have a really difficult experience and your hope like, man, if this doctor and then what if they can't? Where do we find our hope? The right person, obviously, to kind of shoot to the last chapter. The right thing to, to place your hope in is God and His Word. Because God and His Word is the only person, the only thing that will never fail and never fade. Everything else will. Your health eventually will fail. Your wealth eventually gone. Anything that you can have in this world, relationships or things, will at some point fail or fade. But God's Word stands forever. God never changes. He will never fail. But the reality is, all of us have to be real careful. Like, where, do we, where do we really put our hope? Are we hoping for something or are we hoping in someone? And that's different. Now Christmas is a season of hope. I'm not sure we consider that or think about that much because there's so much going on during Christmas. you got just the noise of the culture that 
wants to really get rid of Christmas and say happy holidays or whatever and just take it away from Jesus as much as possible, even though it's kind of deceptively so. But then there's just the noise of Christmas even within the Christian church. Just busy. A lot of stuff going on. It's actually one thing, at least this morning I want to focus on, is hope. That it's this time, a unique time to remember that God keeps His promises. But it's not just celebrating that one time back in that one place, in that one stable, in that one major. Oh, I remember where God kept His promises with that one thing. The reality is, like that moment, this Christmas moment, that does establish our hope. But as you go through the Gospel and you hear the story and the history of the cross and the resurrection, what we are given according to the Apostle Peter is a living hope. It's like hope was established somewhere, but it kept going to direct us and and really guide our daily living. So Christmas isn't just celebrating what God did in Christ, it's what Jesus is doing now and is going to do that gives us hope. Now, I just said, like, we can't just look backwards, right? We can't just, like, oh, this, celebrate this one thing, but we're going to have to look backwards to get that. That's why we have this Old Testament Christmas. Because the hope that was fulfilled in the New Testament was actually first declared by the prophet in the Old Testament that was 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah is a big book. We typically go through books of the Bible straight through. It's 66 books, this vision that Isaiah was given. They call it often the Little Bible. It's very vast, very powerful. It's very messianic. It points to Jesus time and time again. But we're going to just spend four weeks in four small sections of it. And one day I'll be brave enough to preach the whole thing. But he came, Isaiah shows up at a, at a very dark time in Israel's history. And honestly, if you look through the Old Testament, it's a lot of dark times in Old Testament history and history of Israel because they're a pretty screwed up bunch that basically uh, really struggle with loving God. But God loves them regardless. But basically, this is a time in their history just before their first major exile And it is ultimately a time when God is raising up a nation to punish them for their idolatry. And so Isaiah's name means Yahweh, which is the name of God. Yahweh is salvation. And Isaiah is this herald of hope at a time where things are completely hopeless. Now, he was called to be a prophet in the time of King Uzziah. You'll hear that name throughout chapter 7 and elsewhere. And King Uzziah uh, assumed the throne of Judah at the age of 16, and he reigned a very long time, about 50 years. If you come to our men's breakfast, we're going to talk about this guy. He was a pretty incredible guy, as in like incredibly wonderful and horrible all at the same time. He was very strong, he was very smart, but he was also very prideful. And so through his reign, he strengthened the nation of Judah during a time when the Assyrian Empire We've talked about that as we went through Haggai. The Assyrian Empire was basically dominating the Fertile Crescent. So if you think of the Mediterranean over here, and you think of Israel, the nation right here, you got Assyria kind of all in this northwest 
section, northeast section, I'm sorry, that is actually building this big empire, taking over things, and that's what's happening at this time. But King Uzziah is kind of able to um, secure the nation of Israel, and actually under his reign, it was a lot of military success, a lot of political stability, a lot of prosperity for God's people. But eventually, he's going to die. And about five years before he dies, a new king rises in Assyria who was way worse and more powerful and smarter than the other. And he has his eyes on Israel because it's a very economically rich place. It's a place that is strategically located. So he wants that ultimately. And so as this new king begins to move kind of down southwest to start conquering, there's different city-states that aren't necessarily a part of Israel that start making agreements with Assyria because they know like, we're going to get our tails kicked anyway, so we'll just pay you and you'll take care of us and then we can be friends. But we'll ultimately be Assyrian. And so Uzziah dies and suddenly like, "Uh uh-oh, the big king is gone And even though they had the appearance of prosperity and the appearance of success, what happens, and the first five chapters of Isaiah kind of reveal this, like Israel is incredibly corrupt and idolatrous. Uzziah was idolatrous. We'll see that this king is idolatrous. And so it starts coming out. So the first five chapters of Isaiah are God speaking to Isaiah, basically saying, I'm going to destroy these people. They look really religious. They're doing all their things. But as you read through those first five chapters, what you'll read is God's like, your sacrifices make me sick. You're doing all the, quote, right things. Your hearts are so far from me. You're idolatrous. You're faking it. It's ridiculous. I don't care about your festivals. I don't care about your sacrifices. You make me sick. And so throughout this time after the death, different kings would rise. And one of those kings was Ahaz. And most of these kings were just kind of biding their time going from crisis to crisis as Assyria grew. So this king named Ahaz uh, is where we start in verse 1. It says, in the days of Ahaz. Well, to set the stage for like what happens in those first two verses, a lot of names are in there. What was going on where there were basically... Uh, Two kings, uh, Assyrian king Rezin and Israel's king uh, Pekah, because the nations are divided. So Israel is in the north, Judah's in the south, uh, and then Syria's up kind of in closer to uh, between Israel and uh, as the Assyrians are coming down. And so they say, hey, let's make a defensive alliance. We'll invite Ahaz and Judah into it to defend this big threat that's coming. And so they go to Ahaz, and Ahaz is like, no, not interested in being a part of your defensive alliance. And so that really ticks them off. And so they decide, oh, really? We'll attack you instead, and we'll kick you off the throne, and we'll put our own puppet leader in there who will agree with us, and then we'll defend against Assyria. And so those first uh, two verses is the description of the attack. They come, they, they come and attack And they actually have some success, but ultimately they do not dethrone Ahaz and they do not succeed. But they rally more people to their cause and they decide to attack another time. And they hear this attack about to come. They get the report that they're going to attack again. They have replenished their forces. They get another king to join them. And what happens, as you see, says the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. 
They're scared to death. So much so their hearts, heart of the king, the heart of the people. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you are shaken that deeply. Where things feel so out of control and so hopeless as you see this foreboding threat right there that your world is shaken. And there's like, there's no way that we're going to survive this. There's no way I can fix this. We are scared. That's what's happening. They're hopeless. And this is when Isaiah shows up. God says, I want you to go speak with Ahaz at this moment where they're scared to death. Finds him um, at this upper pool where he's probably getting ready to check the water supply to get ready for a siege where they'll be blocked off from all things to make sure that his people have water. And he tells him, hey, uh, Isaiah, I want you to bring your son when you go speak to Ahaz. Which is a little strange. Scholars disagree whether his son is a little kid at this point, so he could be holding a baby, which would be interesting. Or he's just this you know, young boy that's with him. But he goes, and his son has a strange name. His son actually means remnant will return. So he tells Isaiah, bring remnant will return and go talk to Ahaz. Now, it's kind of a symbol for Ahaz. So you kind of have to read between the lines because you think about this. Yahweh is salvation, that's Isaiah, is bringing, remnant will return to Ahaz, who names means possessing or holding onto. Okay? Yahweh is salvation, bringing remnant return to the man who's holding onto. Now, it's curious, and I wouldn't go too far with this, but that idea speaks pretty clearly to what Ahaz is doing. Because as we see it unfold, Ahaz is actually holding on to, if you will, a particular vision for how he hopes things will go. He is ultimately hoping in or for what he wants. What he wants to do is stay on the throne. What he wants to do is make sure his nation is, is stays as a nation. What he wants to do in many ways is the very opposite of what God says is going to happen. But he's holding on to that doing every can to preserve that, right? And you have to be very careful. When you're, when you're hoping for something so desperately that you're holding on to it to the point where, as you'll see, it has, you ignore the Word of the Lord, be careful. And that's what he's doing. So, he, as I said, Isaiah had been told in the first five chapters prior to uh, talking with Ahaz, that basically the destruction of God's people was assured. It was going to happen. There was nothing that was going to stop it. He was going to use Assyria to do it. And so there's no question about whether judgment is coming. The question is, is Ahaz going to be part of the faithful remnant who trusts God's Word despite what they see, or is he going to trust in himself? It's his one chance... Ahaz has one chance as he's confronted with God's Word to basically let go for what he is hoping for and actually hope in God. That's what he's going to say. Stop hoping for this. Stop hoping for that. Hope in God. So with the threat of another invasion, the prophet tells Ahaz this. So you've got to imagine this. You've got three kings about to attack like, they're there. They can probably see the armies. 
You have the growing empire of Assyria beyond that, which is way bigger and way more powerful. And Isaiah shows up, and what does he tell him? Be careful. Be quiet. Don't fear. And don't worry. Now, you've got to think about this, right? First of all, what you find is that uh, Ahaz isn't a real spiritual dude. So you got a guy coming in like, hey, Lord's got a word for you. I know everyone's about to be decimated. But don't worry. Be careful. Don't fear. Don't do anything rash. He says, those, those armies up there that you see, they're nothing. They're like little smoldering wicks that have come to their end. They are nothing. Don't worry about it. So just keep calm and do nothing. Literally, do nothing. Don't make alliances. Don't go out and fight. Don't trust in your own ability to fix this situation. Don't even trust in your own understanding the situation. Don't trust in your own strength. Don't trust in your own eyes. Don't even trust in your own imagination. Don't trust in yourself at all. Just be still and hope in God. And wait. That is the hardest thing to hear the Lord say. Especially when you have armies threatening you. When you're in a hopeless situation, I know because I, well first of all, I'm a dude. And secondly, I'm a dude that thinks he can fix the world. Right? So when things feel hopeless, it's like, let's do this. What do we got to do? And to hear the Lord say, just wait. Do nothing. (laughs) Nothing? Do nothing? Just wait? And we kind of like, when, when we hear do nothing, we assume that God is doing nothing. No, He's just telling you to do nothing. He's still working. But that's what we tell Ahaz. Do nothing. I know you're king. I know you're responsible for all these people. I know you have a military about to totally decimate them all. But do nothing. Don't worry. They have plans. They're not going to come about. And the question is like, why does he say this? And he says this, and we have to be told to do nothing. Like, why is it told to be nothing? Because when things get hard, when things threaten our security or, or threaten our joy, we tend to put our faith in something else we believe will help us stand. We tend, what we do oftentimes, I think we, we hold on, like hold on to what we're hoping for instead of, of surrendering and being held by the one we're hoping in. It's very different. So Ahaz is told, if you look at verse 9, the very end of verse 9, He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you're not firm in faith, like trusting in me and my word, you will not be firm at all. You think by holding on tightly to these things, by possessing them and and making sure they don't get taken away, that that will result in them not get taken away. And he kind of like, they're going to be taken away. So stop hoping for those things and hope in me. He says, if you don't trust my word, you're going to fail. If 
you depend on yourself and your ability to overcome, you're going to fail. If you put your belief in your vision for how the future is going to unfold, you're going to fail. If you put more faith in the power and more fear in those enemies than you fear me and trust in my power, you will fail. See, we it's so tempting to do that. I think we get into a situation, and I'll, I'll just speak to you as a, as a church planter. When you're planting a church, um, it's like you almost feel like, ah, we can't fail. Like you show up, there's no one there. You're like, well, God better show up or no one's going to be here. And it's, it's actually very freeing. Like, I'm going to show up, I'm going to preach. We have no bills really because we're meeting in a, you know, my garage or uh, our elementary school. So who cares? It's like little pennies. And then it grows and it becomes something. And then suddenly you begin to fear losing. You fear whether there's going to be enough of X, Y, Z. Will anyone actually show up now that we have like something to protect? And what you forget in that moment, and we forget this with our life, we forget this with our marriage, we forget this with our family, we forget this with our church, is that God is the one who created it in the first place. He's the one that brought it about. Like Ahaz is tempted to believe that his nation was created because of some political strategy, because some way that they were smart enough and strong enough, because Uzziah was a pretty strong dude. Like, well, that's how you've been preserved as a nation. What they don't realize is that God created their nation. And God has preserved their nation. And God has defended their nation. Like, that everything they have was a gift of the Lord. And so, when you forget that, you'll be tempted to do things to try and hold on to it, not realizing that it's God's marriage, God's family, God's church, God's people. And when you realize, when you get to the point where you realize where your help has always come from, because, again, you tend to be like, well... This came about because I'm a pretty studly guy, or I'm a smart guy, or I'm a lucky guy, like whatever. But when you realize where your help has always come from, you will recognize where your hope should always be. Now, after telling Ahaz, you need to be still, you need to just trust God and do nothing, the Lord says something else that I think is just awesome. He says, ask me for a sign, big or small, proof that you can believe me. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ahaz. Ask whatever you want, anything to prove what I'm saying is true. Now, we've probably heard, or you've probably heard, and Ahaz brings it up, about testing the Lord. And there is a um, kind of sin that's connected with testing the Lord. Because when I say, for example, like, I will trust you, God, um, when you prove you can be trustworthy by doing this. Like, I'll trust you, Lord, when, when, when you make uh, my job easier or you make my income higher or you make my kids more behaved or you give me the relationship I want. Like, okay, you will be worthy of my trust when you prove you're trustworthy. That's sinful. That's wrong. That's screwed up in so many different ways. And that's not what's going on here, right? Like that, to that mentality is just a, it's just a veiled unbelief. And it's treating God like He's some kind of dog performing tricks where you're like, oh, well, if you do this, 
I'll pet you. Thanks. But that's not what's going on. Like what here, Ahaz isn't asking for a sign in the awesomest way. God's asking him to ask for a sign. No, go ahead. Come on, ask me. Whatever. Big or small, ask me. I'll do it. He's offering in many ways to prove that he can be trusted. But Ahaz refuses and he says, I shouldn't test the Lord. The Lord is the one asking you to do. So it's not, he's not pious. He's not like righteous. I think what's really going on is that you have a newbie prophet walk up and go, hey, um, the Lord says this, you need to do this. And he's like, mm, nice, good to talk to you, Isaiah. I not really talked to you before. I know you kind of think you're important now because suddenly God spoke to you, but you can take you and your interpretation and go somewhere else. He not say that, but ultimately I believe he refuses a sign because he doesn't want a sign. He refuses to do what God commands because he really doesn't care about what God says. Period. And the thing about that, it's, it's not that he doesn't care about the hopeless situation he's in. Like when people refuse to listen to the Lord, and whether that word that comes is just be still and wait, or just trust me, I have this, or even that, hey, it's going to get worse, but it'll be okay. The reason we don't like to hear that is because um, we are putting our hope in something else. It's not that we don't have hope. It's that we're exchanging hope in God for something we believe we really can trust that will really bring those circumstances that we want about. See, Ahaz just isn't interested in getting spiritual advice. What he's interested in is pragmatics. I know how this is going to work out. It's going to be this strategy. Here's how you fix it. I'm not just going to pray about it. Come on. I came across a quote this last week. I think it's from Oswald Chambers. Could be Oswald Sanders. It's from Oswald. And he said, prayer is not equipping you for greater works. Prayer is the greater work. But how often when you're in a situation when you have armies threatening you, like real practical, real things about to destroy you, is your first thought to go, hmm, I think I'll just stop and pray. I think all too often our hope and our trust leans into, okay, how can I plan my way out of this? How can I fix this? What can I do to avoid this? Ultimately, Ahaz is trusting in the work that he feels like he can control to save him from the hell that he sees coming. So it's not that Ahaz isn't hoping in something. He's just choosing to hope in the wrong thing. Now, it's really dangerous to hope in the wrong thing. And we see what happens as a result of his choice. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 16, so go to the left if you're in Isaiah. If you haven't been in Isaiah, shame on you. But go to the left. And God's not surprised when uh, ultimately Ahaz makes this decision, but he is pretty ticked about it. And through Isaiah who said, hey, ask God for a sign. He's like, no, I don't want a sign. And Isaiah's like, you're getting one anyway. 
Because I'm going to prove that my word's going to come about whether you want to believe it or not. And so he says in verse 13 of Isaiah 7, but we're, um, we're going to be in 2 Kings in a second. Hear then, O house of David, exclamation point. So when you see an exclamation point, he's like upset or excited. I think this one's upset. Okay, house of David. Okay, king on the Davidic throne. Okay, the one who is placed there by God who serves the king of kings. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? That's what Isaiah says. Seriously? You're going you're gonna to weary men out with your little diatribes and, and fake wisdom? You think you can fool God? You think that you don't need God? And he says, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And that statement, like, it's a miraculous sign. It's like, okay, I'm going to do something big. I'm going to give you a miraculous sign to show you that my word can be trusted. That I'm with my people and I'm bringing about my plan Ahaz was invited to trust in God, to be still, and to be saved, but he refuses because he thinks he can save himself. He thinks there's something else to hope in other than God that will save him, and he believes that's Assyria. Because what's happening, as he sees these threats coming down from these three kings, little kings, who have combined to fight this one king, he's like, hmm... Maybe I'll just go make a deal with the one king. I mean, I could listen to God, the king of kings. Yeah, that's a little too spiritual for me. I'll fix it this way. So 2 Kings chapter 16, telling the same story that we hear in Isaiah 7. That's why you've got to read your whole Bible. So it all works together. It says, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Romaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, that's the king we're talking about, the king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old and began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He, burned, he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Did you hear that? Does it make sense that Isaiah is told to bring his son as a sign of the promise and then that he gives a sign that has to deal with the birth of a son? He's like, hey Isaiah, Ahaz, wake up. You screwed up royally. And yet he still gives him opportunity for faith. Which is amazing. It continues says, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Amalia, king of Israel. So here's the alliance they made. They came up to war, wage war on Jerusalem and they besieged Ahaz, but they couldn't conquer him. So they surrounded him, but they couldn't take the city. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath, which was another piece of land, for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. And so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So that's the new king that come. 
So after they attack, and then they stop, now they're going to attack a second time. Before they do that, he sends messengers to his pagan enemy, the great empire of Assyria. So that alliance was there to fight against Assyria, and now he's going to his enemy to have a request for rescue when the Lord said, I I can rescue you. I can save you. Yeah, sure. I'm going to go to this guy. So he sends messages, and here's what he says. I am your servant and your son. That's to a pagan king who has no allegiance to the one true God from the man sitting on the throne of David, put there by God, who serves the creator and ruler of the universe. Going to a pagan king, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So to bribe this pagan king, he robs from the house of God and gives him God's stuff. And the king of Assyria listened to him. And the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, that's in Syria, and took it, carrying his people captive to Kerr, and he killed Rezin. And then he kills the next king. So what does Syria do? Wiped him out. The problem was Assyria didn't stop. In hoping for the wrong thing, which was ultimately success apart from God, it ends up costing him clearly because he hopes in the wrong person. Ahaz rejects the heavenly Savior and turns to an earthly one, which is what we do every time when we look to something to save us from the hell that's not named Jesus. And the, catch this. This is sobering for all of us who tend to not take this very seriously. Who really believe like, I, I actually hope in Jesus, but in our heart of hearts we're hoping for something else and trusting in something else to bring that about. The very thing that Ahaz hoped in for salvation destroyed him. The very thing that he hoped was going to save him that was not named Jesus, that was not of God, was the very thing that enslaved him and then killed most of the people. Hoping in the right thing is really important. Hoping the right one is really important. Because as much temporary salvation as some things might give that you put hope in, it can't save you. But now hope was lost. That did happen. Although Ahaz didn't believe the sign, there was a remnant who did and would. There was a remnant, as was prophesied, who looked and who waited for the promise child that was called Emmanuel that would prove that God was with them, that would prove God loved them, that would prove God was saving them. But years passed and that child that they expected never came. God doesn't really work on our timetable. That's frustrating. They would wait and no one came. And eventually Assyria does attack the kingdom of Judah and does destroy it to the extent where it really ceases to exist. And as we just got done studying Haggai, right? we do see that a remnant 
did return, came from captivity. And although they rebuild the temple and ultimately rebuild the city, the nation of Israel never really rises again and the king never comes to power as he ought. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, people watched for the promised Messiah who would be the sign of God's judgment and the sign of His salvation and the sign of His presence all in one. And they would wonder, man, it's been a long time. Can God's Word be trusted? Can it really be trusted? Will He really fulfill His promise? Should I really hope in Him? Or should I hope in something else to bring about just what I think I need? Life got hard for Him. And I am beginning to learn as I get older that as life gets hard, hope in Jesus becomes more real. And I've also realized, which it's in the moment hard to realize it, but the most comfortable or the more comfortable and manageable that my life becomes, the more I naturally don't feel like I really need to hope in God. And that's why, and now this is, this is like dangerous to say, especially people who are dealing right now with hopeless situations. And I don't, I don't determine what's hopeless. You either feel hopeless or you don't. But if you feel hopeless right now, I do believe that hardship is a gift. I say that right now because I don't feel hopeless in very many areas of my life right now. But hardship, like when difficulty comes, when those situations come where you have armies bearing down, where you feel like, man, I'm about to just get destroyed or this thing that I love is about to get destroyed, right? My security feels threatened or my joy is feeling robbed. Like, ah, what am I going to do? It's at those moments, I would call them moments of grace, where hardship reveals the kind of help that you actually need and therefore the kind of hope that you should have already or must always have. See, over 600 years later, an angel does come. And he visits a young man named Joseph in the armpit of Galilee, a place called Nazareth. And he was betrothed, which is like engaged to a young woman who was a virgin. And she one day says, hey Joe, so we're pregnant. We're pregnant, right? How did that happen? So it was this angel <laughs> came and saw me. Hey, what's his name, right? I mean, you can imagine... As much as you want to believe, Joseph didn't believe her at first. Right? Joseph's like, yeah, an angel, sure. She's discovered to be pregnant, and so he resolves because he loves her and he wants to be, um, preserve her dignity. He's like, I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm going to end the betrothal quietly. So Matthew chapter 1 records this. And he says, as he considered these things, and that's divorcing her, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That must have been relieving to him. <laughs> Good. But then he keeps going, right? She will bear a son, 
And you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, quoting Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angel tells Joseph that this child Mary is going to bear is the fulfillment that the prophecy that Isaiah gave 700 years ago to Ahaz. Hope in God means hope in baby Jesus. Now he's no longer a baby, but you know what I mean. But here's something to consider, and we can make the arguments of why it's so important for Jesus to be born a virgin. That's a great theological discussion that we can have another day, but I do believe that uniqueness of Jesus' birth reveals the uniqueness of Christian hope. It's not a normal kind of hope. Christian hope is is unlike any other hope in the world. Like it, it is hope in God, but there's, there's briefly a couple things. Hope in God is hope in a miraculous hope. Like, He was conceived of a virgin. Right? We don't, we don't hope for something irrational. We are hoping in someone who works beyond reason. Someone who raises the dead. Someone who causes virgins to conceive. Someone who parts the seas. Someone who created the world with a a word. Stuff that doesn't make sense. We're so tempted as things get hopeless to try and make sense of things. Oh, I know what needs to happen. I know what I need to do. You don't know nothing, but you should hope in the Lord who knows everything and who can bring about a miracle if necessary to make things happen. That's the Christian hope. I don't hope in what I see. I hope in who I know. I don't hope in what I understand. I hope in the one who does understand. Now, as much as it's an extraordinary hope, there's another thing about Christian hope. It's actually somewhat of an ordinary hope. Yes, shall be born, conceived by a Holy Spirit, but born of a woman. As much as Mary and Joseph had nothing to do with the conception, Mary had something to do with the birth. It hurt. It was natural. It was real. And sometimes we're like, oh, Christian hope. I am am praying for a miracle. Like, Do you realize that sometimes and many times those miracles come through very natural means? I've been on the front row as a pastor of watching crazy miracles that don't make sense. Marriages where the husband and wife one week hate each other. And the next week there's been a transformation. Where the husband is confessing sin and the wife is confessing sin and then they're experiencing reconciliation. I'm like, but what what happened? Must have been an amazing counseling session the week before. And I gave you all the answers. That's just not the case. But God works through very natural means at times. And so what we see happen doesn't look like a miracle, but it is a miracle. Every salvation is a miracle. That someone changes from like, what a foolish story about Jesus. Oh, Jesus is Lord. How do you explain that? It's a miracle. But it's a miracle that we can see that comes through very ordinary means. Christian hope is a couple other things. It's also salvific hope. What's that mean? His name was Jesus. 
God saves. So when we're hoping in someone, particularly hoping in God, we're hoping that He rescues us from our real problem. See, here's the catch. When we experience hopelessness, I think nine times out of ten, we actually don't understand what the problem is. Our big problem, if you will, is internal. Our big problem is that we need actually rescue at a spiritual level. Our big problems are not practical. They're not horizontal. They're vertical. And Jesus comes and says, I'm here to save you. Great! A bigger paycheck? I'm here to save you. Great! Peace with all these relationships? I'm here to save you. Great! Just an easier life? No, I'm saving you from your sin. I'm saving you from your real problem. And it's a real solution that only I can offer. And the last part of Christian hope is it's a very personal hope, right? God doesn't go, hey, angel, go do your work. Hey, magic powder, whatever, do your work, right? What? He comes in person. God with us is involved and says, guess what? Salvation isn't just about fixing your life. It's about being with me. It's about reconciliation with me. It's about eternity dwelling with me. So when we talk about Christian hope, what we're talking about is miracles that come through very ordinary means to save us and bring us back to God. That's what the virgin birth shows us in the most amazing, incredible ways. It's not just, oh, birth of Jesus. Like, whoa, this is the kind of hope that we live in? This is the kind of hope that guides my life every day until Jesus returns a second time? Yes. Hope is that powerful. But I will tell you, life without hope is just as bad as life with the wrong hope. And so there are some here that don't have hope. And they need Jesus. And there are some here that honestly, you just have the wrong hope. And you need Jesus. The power of hope resides in that which is hoped in, not what is hoped for. Don't be like Ahaz, who hoped for something that ultimately destroyed him. Hope in Jesus. And not even for something that you believe that He will do for you. Can we play that game too? I'll hope in Jesus because He will do this for me. No. You don't even know what you need. He does. And let us not forget, and I say this as a warning to be careful about even presuming what Jesus or how Jesus is going to unfold that hope in your life. Mary also had a meeting with an angel. You know what Mary was told? Oh, you have a baby in your belly. She's like, oh, how is that possible? Holy Spirit, okay. And you know what she's told? His name is going to be Jesus. And he's going to be great. And he's going to be king. Now you think about what a peasant girl in that moment imagines that means. Huh. I got a king. He's going to sit on David's throne. Wow. I'll be the queen mother, right? I will, he will have a kingdom. He will, he will save us from the Romans. He will 
this is going to be amazing. Do you think for a second, up until the point her son was hanging on the cross, that she really understood what it meant for her son to be king? I don't think so. And that's the difference between hoping for something and hoping in. Hope in Jesus. We, as Christians, don't hope for something better. We hope in someone better who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever hope. That's what the manger and the virgin birth and the Christmas season establishes for us. What truly is hope? Let's pray.